Welcome to Doha Debates. In each episode, we present opposing sides of an urgent issue and search for common ground. So get ready for a conversation that's smart, spirited, civil, and respectful. Hey there, I'm Joshua Johnson, and I will be moderating today's debate on genetic editing. Our topic may sound like science fiction from movies like Gattaca or Elysium or X-Men, but a few years ago, life imitated art, and we kind of saw it coming. Back in 2019, a scientist in China was arrested and sentenced to three years in prison for genetically engineering newborns. The reason? To try and make them immune to HIV, the virus that causes AIDS. This scientist was using a new gene editing tool known as CRISPR, and I do mean editing, the way you can cut and paste words in a document. CRISPR can do that with genetic code. This machine has many researchers excited at its possibilities, like addressing chromosomal defects. Clearly, it excited that Chinese scientist, too. After serving his sentence, he is now proposing experiments on ways to cure dementia. It's one thing to modify genes for disease prevention, but what about for preventing addictions? How about increasing intelligence or physical fitness or to make children taller or friendlier? How much of that is okay with you? Right now, it seems we're very divided on this. Pew Research surveyed people in 20 countries about genetic editing. Nearly two-thirds of them said they opposed scientific research on gene editing. Two-thirds. But if it was used, for example, to help women get pregnant, nearly three-quarters said they support that. So, is editing human genetics ethical? Should we keep researching it? What's acceptable? What's off limits? There's a lot to debate here, so let's get into it with today's guests. Joining us from London is Joyce Harper. She's the head of the Reproductive Science and Society Group at the University College London's Institute for Women's Health. Professor Harper, welcome to Doha Debates. Thank you. Looking forward to it. Joining us from Edinburgh is Sarah Chan. She is the Chancellor's Fellow in Ethics and Science at the University of Edinburgh. Dr. Chan, welcome. Hi, Joshua. Thanks for having me on. By the way, you should know that Sarah Chan is joining us in transit from a library, which typically are quiet, but you might hear some background noises from time to time on her end. Later, we'll take a few questions from two of our global listeners who will listen to this debate and share their thoughts. But I have two rules before we start. First, no personal attacks at all. We're here to pick apart the issue, not each other. And secondly, please do not answer a question with a question. It's okay to think out loud or to think aloud if you get stuck or stumped or if it's a complex answer, but don't duck the issue by pivoting to something else. Every question must be answered before you raise other points. So with all that said, let's dive in. And if I could, Professor Harper, let me start with you. You've argued that gene editing is at least 10, 20 years away from being viable. And even then, we may be probably better off not using these treatments. Lay out your argument for why that is. Well, there's two reasons why you might do genome editing of a human embryo, and that would be to prevent disease within those children, or, as you've mentioned, genetic enhancement. So my, my view is it's a slippery slope. I've worked in the field of reproduction and fertility and fertility treatment for over 30 years, I've seen many uses of this technology that makes me feel uneasy of 
IVF procedures that makes me feel uneasy, such as there are some clinics where the majority of their cases that they do are for sex selection because the couple desire a sex of a particular kind. There is also discussions now about using um, genetic analysis of embryos to try and improve intelligence or pick the embryo that's going to be the most intelligent. Or very soon, you mentioned Gattaca. Gattaca is really almost here, where we'll be able to use this technology to decide which of those embryos we want that's going to be the sportiest, the most intelligent, the tallest, etc. So I think we're on a slippery slope. And I'm looking forward to discussing that more today. Sarah Chan, you've argued that gene therapy could unlock breakthroughs and that walking away from it could do more harm than good. Why is that? So, you know, I think both of these things can simultaneously be true, that we're a long way off really being able to apply this in the ways that it's envisioned and that it might lead to undesirable consequences if used in the wrong way and that it could lead to breakthroughs. Uh, One of the first things that people often say in relation to what I'm going to call human genetic modification is, oh, isn't it dangerous? How can it be worth the risk? And I'm going to say, you know, everything in life comes with some degree of risk. And with respect to human genetic modification, I think it's really important to recognize, as well as the risks of doing it, uh, which I think there, there are risks and we need to talk more about that, But there's also a risk associated with not doing it. In other words, there's an opportunity cost. If we choose not to pursue the development of these technologies, we're implicitly turning away from and foregoing the benefits that genetic modification might otherwise bring. Now, we don't fully understand yet all of the risks that human genetic modification might involve, and I think we'll want to come back to to talk about that more. But we do know some of the risks of not doing it in terms of the harm and suffering caused by diseases, which it's hoped genetic technologies might provide a cure for. And, you know, if we successfully achieve that with gene editing, that could be a tangible and significant benefit to many people as well as to society in terms of alleviating the burden of disease. Now, it's true we can't say for sure that genome editing is going to do all these miraculous things, realise all the benefits that it currently promises, but we do know one way of ensuring that it doesn't achieve any of those benefits is not to pursue it at all. And that's a risk that I think we'd rather not take. Joyce Harper, where do you draw the line between, say, using this genetic power to treat diseases as opposed to modifying traits? Give me an example of what's in bounds and what's out of bounds as you see it. It it, it is a a wobbly line for sure. But for me, choosing um, something that people do now, as I've already mentioned, choosing the, the sex of your child, I think that's over the line. I think using technology for that reason is is not what we should be doing. And just responding to Sarah, I don't know any, well, I know very, very few numbers of genetic diseases that we cannot identify before delivery or either before the embryo is implanted by pre-implantation genetic testing or early in the pregnancy with prenatal diagnosis that is going to prevent those diseases. So I think the risk of the safety of of the technique of genome editing is too risky. We can't check the safety. There's, we've talked about this for years. How would you check the safety of modifying the genome of an embryo. We couldn't do that. So we don't know what that modification is going to do to our future generations. And so I'd I'd like to know which sort of diseases 
Sarah thinks that the only option would be genome modification. Yeah, so I don't want to claim that genome editing or genetic modification is the only way to cure some of these diseases. And when I say, you know, diseases for which genome editing technologies might provide an amelioration or cure, I'm not only thinking of genetic diseases uh, where there's, let's say, a mutation that causes a disease and that you go and you fix that specific mutation. But we do know that genome editing technologies could be used in lots of other ways to cure maybe not inherited genetic diseases, but for example, genome editing has played a pretty important role in developing some of the treatments for cancer, for example. So it's not, I'm not thinking only of those diseases which we can also address by, as you've said, um, pre-implantation genetic selection or prenatal genetic diagnosis. I think it nevertheless is true that for some, for some parents, they might prefer not to have to go through that process of you know, conceiving a child and then undergoing testing and then having to make the decision about terminating a pregnancy or perhaps going through the process of uh, generating embryos and then having to realise that none of them um, none of them are free of the disease and then have to go through the process again. So I think, you know, that it doesn't need to be the only way for it to present a beneficial solution for some families. But I also don't want to say that the only benefits that we're looking at is specifically curing certain sorts of genetic diseases. I think it's an important point to how we understand the process of scientific discovery and translation and application. Joyce, you've talked about a slippery slope. And I think we need to think about science more like a garden of forking paths. So, you know, some of those paths are going to lead to undesirable consequences. But if we cut those off at the root, we're also going to close off all the paths that could lead to the good consequences. And part of science, part of discovery, is that we don't always know, in the same way as we don't always know the risks, but we don't always know what the benefits might be. We might discover something with genome editing that leads to an entirely new form of therapy. And what I'm arguing is that we shouldn't close that off too soon. I do want to get more into that, into the potentials that are there as well as the risks. But before we do, Joyce, I want to make sure we close the loop on the point you were just making in terms of say, parents choosing the sex of their child through genetic techniques. Could you just clarify why you're opposed to that? If a parent just wants to have a boy instead of a girl, or there are certain cultures around the world where men and women have very different social standings and opportunities available to them, what's your opposition to that? There's several reasons. The first with is with undermining sex of, uh, unfortunately, almost every country that does this, they are choosing boys. So we're undermining the value of a female within communities. And I know that some of these communities practice other ways of uh, of obtaining boys, which can be even uh, much more brutal, but I don't think two wrongs make a right. So I've seen people argue that, oh, well, in the Western world, people choose girls and boys equally, but... I still think that globally and historically we have a culture where a boy is valued more than a girl. I'm I'm actually the mother of three boys and I had so many people say, oh, are you going to keep going till you have a girl? You know, why, why have we got to have families where it almost feels like, oh, you know, this, this Gucci handbag or this is Jimmy Choo shoes. Oh yes. We'll go and get the, the one that suits our family dynamics. So I, I just think it's undermining the value, especially of women, but but of either sex. And the second reason this makes me uncomfortable is 
what happens to those female embryos? They go in the bin. So we are using a technology where we're not just commodifying the human that we're going to make, but we're also discarding the ones who don't sit fit, fit the remit of the couple choosing the child. So for me, this is over the line and it is a slippery slope leading to, oh, well, now you can tell me which one's going to be predisposed. Genetics is more complicated than certainly for characteristics than just a single gene, but predisposed to higher intelligence, predisposed to be taller, predisposed to sporting ability, musical ability. So I think allowing it for sex selection is just, it has opened that door to say, well, if people have the money, and this is the other issue, people that use this technology to have their families only do it if they've got a significant bank balance to do this. This is not a cheap procedure. So we've opened that door to the... 1%, 1%, a bit more than the 1% of our population who can afford it to really start choosing the characteristics and, and really increasing that class divide that we already have. Sarah, for many people, this issue basically boils down to two words, playing God. Using genetic power this way, let's be frank, feels creepy to a lot of people. How do you see that issue of playing God? Okay, so uh, Josh, you have actually you've brought up two different um, or slightly different arguments, if you like, or ways that people might feel in response to these technologies. Uh, one is often called playing God, and I will point out, uh, you know, it's not not only religious people. In fact, uh, it's very often non-religious people who come up with this uh, playing God objection. And then the other one is, oh, it feels creepy, uh, and we we tend to call that the the yuck factor. You know, we as a species are sort of biologically programmed to be concerned about novelty because, you know, in the in the prehistoric world, something that was new was probably going to kill you. So we're conditioned to be scared of new things and to find them creepy and spooky. But, you know, we're also conditioned, for example, to prefer people who look like us. And we know that that's neither ethical nor rational. So I think we've got to separate out when is a feeling of it's spooky or it's creepy justified and when is it just well we've got to acknowledge that we feel this but let's think about this rationally as far as playing god that usually translates into an argument from what i'm going to call inappropriate agency that we think there are some decisions some choices that it's maybe um hubristic as michael sandel would put it or that um you know we shouldn't be taking this responsibility for the choice on ourselves now when it comes to choices about what your children look like or the sex of your children. I share some of your concerns there, Joyce. Uh, When it comes to choices about the health of your future children, I think most of us would say, actually, it is the action of a responsible parent. It is a proper exercise, even a necessary exercise of parental agency to try and make decisions that are going to give their children better health, um, a better start in life, etc. So, you know, I think there are ways of looking at those arguments. I kind of want to put all of this in context because the question in front of us is what should we do about human genome editing today? Human genome editing today is kind of at a point where things like IVF were 45-odd years ago, where techniques such as pre-implantation genetic diagnosis were 30, 35 years ago. I'm not sure that, uh, Joyce, this is probably not the argument you were trying to make. If we're going to look at things like 
sex selection and say, well, because it's now being used for this, we should have never done that 30 or 40 years ago. We're closing off all of the benefits that have come to families who've had children through IVF and been able to build the family they want. We'd be closing off all the benefits of people who've been able to have children without horrible diseases that would have impacted their life. So, you know, I don't think saying today we have sex selection as the result of IVF, as the result of pre-implantation genetic testing, and we're concerned about that, that's not really an argument to say, by analogy, we should not research human genome editing at all because it might have equally undesirable consequences one day down the line. Joyce, how do you see that? I mean, I, I, I actually have three, <clears throat> my three sons are all IVF as well, and, and I started working in pre-implantation genetic testing. Uh, diagnosis as it, as it was called then, but testing as it's called now back in 1992, so right near the beginning. And it is a procedure that uh, could be done another way, could be done by prenatal diagnosis. So that's in comparison to genetic modification. It's, you know, it's it's something we, we don't need to live with pre-implantation genetic testing. There are other ways that we could do that diagnosis, but we are doing it before the woman is pregnant. So that is an advantage to some people. But globally, the amount of people that take up the procedure is is actually very, very low. And most people will go through prenatal testing. And in my experience, for most people, they just feel it's it's too much. You know, these are people that for most people carrying a genetic disease, some of them will have infertility and would need to go through IVF procedures anyway but some of those do not have infertility and can get pregnant naturally. So when we sit with our couples and tell them what they need to go through to go through pre-implantation diagnosis, the vast majority of them do not feel that this is the right thing for them. That's why so many people actually do a, te a genetic test. If, if they're at risk of, of transmitting a genetic disease to their child, they do the genetic test when they're pregnant not before they're pregnant with with pre-implantation pre genetic testing. So it's only been taken up, taken up by a relatively small number of patients who are in this situation. So I think genome editing, you talked about the research, Sarah, and there is some amazing research that's been going on, such as at the, the Crick Institute and other places that are looking at, they're using the technology to answer some basic science questions, which really is amazing. And I do take the point that should we not allow it for genetic disease, because people might then use it for enhancement, genetic enhancement. But for me, the biggest concern about genetic testing or genetic modification, should I say, of an embryo is that it would be the first time in history that we are, well, it has been done now, created people where someone in a lab has modified the genome of that person, that future person. And as I said earlier, I can think of no way of showing that this is not going to have a knock-on effect to that person. So pre-implantation genetic testing was, we took some cells out of an embryo and we genetically tested them. We didn't go into that embryo. We didn't modify the embryo. We didn't alter its genes. So my biggest concern of this whole procedure is that we are altering the genes of our future generations. And there is no way that I've ever been told or can think of where we can really test the safety 
of that. And the work that has been done in other species has led to some really worrying results that I would really question the safety of it now or even in 10 or 20 years. Joyce, on the flip side of this, we've talked about kind of the ways in which we've done some of these functions with previous forms of testing before this level of genetic testing. I wonder if there's a flip side to it. If genetics allow us to, for example, see what a child's potential is from a very early age and get them on that path sooner, couldn't that be a good thing? I mean, might it actually be immoral if I'm a parent and I've got access to this technology, whether for innate abilities or preventing diseases, to not use it for the best interest of my child, knowing it's within my grasp, what's the morality of that? If we feel it's morally okay that if you can afford it, you can genetically engineer, engineer your child to be even more privileged than they already are. I mean, rich parents already, they have better nutrition for their children. They send their children to better schools. They enable them to do better sporting activities. They have an advantage in life compared to a family much lower down on the social scale. So if we feel it's right in society to make that gap even bigger, um, we will now have two different types of people, those that have been genetically modified and are, you could say, superior. I'm just being uh, provocative here, using some terms. Would these be superior? So then, as you've talked about some of the movies that have been made, will these be the people that are preferentially educated? Will these be the people that are preferentially employed and who are making the decisions more for everybody else. So that class system would become even wider. And it just makes me feel very uncomfortable. And one thing I wanted to say was just because we can do it, should we do it? And I think that with, yes, we've had IVF, we've had pre-implantation genetic testing and we've done them and they were, you know, there was a lot of research and development around these, these procedures and they're, Everyone feels there needs to be a huge amount of research and development around genetic modification. I actually feel that it will be done. It will be done at some point. It will be done, if not openly, it will be done behind closed doors. But I want us to keep debating whether it actually should be done. Sarah, let me get back to the ethics of all of this. I think for Outside observers, it's pretty clear from the growth of social media, artificial intelligence, which we discussed in a previous debate, autonomous vehicles, you know, self-driving cars. It's made it pretty clear, at least to the general public, that Silicon Valley does not feel restrained by ethics the same way that the general public may feel restrained by it. Scientists have, I think it's fair to say, historically, often been more concerned with what can be done with, than what should be done. Do you trust your colleagues in this field of science not to drag the rest of the world into ethical dangers that could get people hurt? I mean, should we trust them? Uh, yeah, uh, Joshua, I feel it's it's really a little unfair. No, I mean, it's quite unfair to say scientists are more concerned with the doing than the, the should we do, because actually, particularly in the UK, it's been the scientists who in many ways have been at the forefront of saying, look, we have to ask these ethical questions now. 
But I won't deny that there are going to be, you know, good eggs and bad eggs in every basket. Uh, and all it takes is one, if you like, rogue scientist to go and do something they shouldn't for the public's trust to be really compromised. And, you know, I think that is something we've, we've got to guard against and be concerned about. But again, I think, uh, you know, Joyce, you said earlier, you think it will be done, but we should keep debating whether it should be done. I think if we, if we believe that it will be done, what we need to do is to be proactive with the research, not with the application, not with the go and do it, but with the research to understand what effects might be, uh, to be out there. I think if we turn away from it and say we're not going to be concerned with it at all, it will happen in other places with other people and we will have less of a say in the ethical as well as the scientific debate. So we've got to stay in that and, and to engage, to have that voice in saying here's where we think we should draw the line. Every month, Past Blue produces an original podcast for our unscripted series on the Security Council Rotating Presidency. In February, we spoke with the Ambassador of Guyana, for example. Unscripted brings you straight into the Council Chamber, where the UN's most important work takes place. Each month, we speak to diplomats about their country's agenda in leading the Council and their goals to achieving global peace and security. Unscripted is a podcast from Past Blue, a women-led media site providing independent coverage of the UN. Search for Unscripted wherever you get podcasts, starting with SoundCloud. We're running toward the end of this ethical discussion. These are good points on both sides of this debate, but I want to bring in a few of our listeners from around the world to share their views and ask some questions. Let's start from Pakistan with Nabila Abbas. Nabila, welcome. Good to have you with us. What's on your mind? Thank you so much. I just wanted to ask, considering the concerns about loss of diversity, how can we ensure that genetic enhancement do not homogenize the human population and instead celebrate our natural diversity? Absolutely. We will have a much narrower view of what is genetically desirable and we will be narrowing our genetic pool. And this is something else that could seriously affect the future of humanity because we need genetic diversity. We need natural selection. Poor Darwin is probably turning in his grave thinking about what we're doing by reducing our genetic pool because what we think is normal and what we think is desirable is going to become a, a smaller and smaller genetic makeup. So this technology will certainly reduce diversity and it will, there will be there'll be a fashion there'll be a fashion you know one year it'll be fashionable to have children with blue eyes and then everyone will have a child with blue eyes and then oh well that's not the fashion anymore well the fashion will be to have you know brown eyes and i i, I it just makes me feel so uncomfortable the way we have the potential to commodify children even more than they some people do already sarah yeah, look, I, I think it's really important to acknowledge those feelings of discomfort. But, you know, I think we need to separate out this concern over commodification and should we be able to treat our children like designer handbags, which I don't think we should. For the record, Joyce, you probably have this as well. The people who write to me interested in these technologies aren't the ones who want to buy a designer handbag child. They're the ones who have genetic diseases and say, my brother died of this. You know, will I be able to get access to this technology? So I think it's not really fair on parents and families of children suffering with disease to, to kind of attribute those, those motives. But I think we need to separate the, 
wrong of commodifying children from the question about diversity. I think it could reduce diversity, but only if used in certain ways. We've already said that the numbers of people using even technologies such as IVF and pre-implantation testing are quite small. Talking on a population level, the, the use of this technology would have to become so widespread for it to have those effects. Um, and then, uh, again, Joyce, as you've said, fashions do change. Now, whether we should be changing our children as we change fashion is that separate question. But actually maintaining a broad attitude to what sorts of human flourishing is possible with brown eyes, with blue eyes, with any colour eyes, in different bodily forms, that's what's going to help us ensure a diverse and healthy society. Let's get to one more question from Fatima Nazar. She's from Pakistan, but joins us from Doha. She's a doctor of pharmacy candidate at Qatar University's College of Pharmacy. Fatima, what's on your mind? Hi, so my question is, what role should international agreements and regulations play in governing the use of gene editing and technology on a global scale? What are the moral and ethical boundaries that we need to draw when it comes to editing genes related to intelligence, physical appearance, or even behavior? Sarah, why don't you take that one first? Yeah, so I think this problem of how we regulate internationally because if we say, you know, we might say, look, in the UK, we're going to have nothing to do with this. What does that help us if in another country they say, all right, everybody who wants to use this technique, if you're from the UK, if you can afford to travel, go and do it there instead. So, again, that's not going to give us the voice in, in the international discussion. Uh, we do need, I think, to come to some sort of international agreement about how we're going to use and regulate these technologies. Otherwise, we risk exacerbating inequalities within societies and inequalities on a, on a global level. But I don't think that that ought to be at a level of de declaring that this particular use is unethical across the board, because what counts as enhancement in one society might be a therapy in another. What we think is desirable or what, what sort of features conduced to living a healthy and good life might be different from one society to another. And I think we need to be really careful of um, ethical imperialism, if you like, of assuming that there is one right answer that all countries need to need to follow. Ethical imperialism. That's an interesting way to put it. Joyce, how would you respond to Fatima before we wrap up? So it is a really interesting question. And unfortunately, even with basic infertility treatment globally, there is no agreements. So even between countries in Europe, even using things like donor eggs, donor sperm, the um, maximum age a woman can have treatment, all those quite basic questions are not in agreement uh, across Europe and certainly not globally. So something as complicated as ge genetic modification, I think will be even more complicated. But within country so in the uk we have we are governed by the human fertilization and embryology authority and they certainly would be the ones that would govern genome enhancement of a pre-implantation embryo so i think it's important to try and have those discussions around regulation but i think it is very very difficult because that we have different cultural and religious views in different countries, and, and we really don't agree about the basics. Fatima, it's interesting that you ask about international agreement, because I did want to end today's discussion with agreement between our panelists, where their views might overlap. Before we go briefly, Joyce, let me just stick with you. Where do you find some agreement 
with Sarah Chan in terms of this issue? Where do you two kind of see eye to eye right now? Well, I, I do think that we we both think this will be done. <laughs> um, I do think it will be done, but I think we need more discussion. And I did want to say in response to something Sarah said earlier, I'm certainly not undermining anyone who's used pre-implantation genetic testing or prenatal diagnosis for an inherited disease. I separate that out. And I, I did this for years. I did testing embryos for genetic disease for years. And that's a very different use of this of any technology than genetic enhancement where where there's no medical reason for that so we we agreed on some things for sure sarah before we go where do you see areas of agreement uh, so I definitely agree with Joyce in terms of thinking that we need a lot more discussion around this it's far from settled I think we agree that it's not something we should be rolling out into the clinics right now because we don't understand enough about it um, I guess I I Another point of commonality is I really share the concerns about social equity and about the role that money and financial incentives are going to play both in the development of the technology and in terms of how it how it might get rolled out. And I want to say one last thing on that. You know, any new technology, there's always going to be a concern that it being available to the rich and not the poor is going to make the gaps bigger between the haves and the have-nots. And that is a concern. But I don't think it's a solution to say, oh, because it might have an inequitable effect, we should not have this technology. Great argument done and dusted. What we need to be saying is we already live in an unjust society. How can and how should we be using new technologies to try and reduce injustices? If rich people afford genetic treatments for their children, that reduces the burden on the health system and those resources are freed up for the, the less well-off. That's, that's a point of justice. If we use genome editing to address the diseases that affect the worst off among us, those in low and middle income countries, that would be pro-justice rather than against it. And that's what we should be asking. How can we do that? Sarah Chan, Joyce Harper, I think if the future debates on this topic are as thoughtful and as engaged as this one that you have both graced us with, I think we're going to find solutions to these problems. I really appreciate you both making time. Thank you both very much for a great debate. And to our global listeners, Nabila Abbas and Fatima Nazar, thank you as well. Doha Debates is a production of Qatar Foundation. Our podcast is produced by FP Studios and Doha Debates. Our producers include Ashley Westerman, TJ Raphael, Claudia Tady, and Katrine Dermody, with additional assistance from James Wally. FP Studios Managing Director is Rob Sachs. Our executive producers are Jfit Weeks, Amjad Atala, and Jigar Mehta. You can explore our other podcasts, short films, upcoming events, and more online at Doha Debates. That's D-O-H-A Debates.com. If you like this program, please follow the podcast and write us a review. And be sure to check out my podcast, The Nightlight with Joshua Johnson. It's a program about democracy, culture, and solving the problems we share. Until we meet again, I'm your moderator, Joshua Johnson. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.